read is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. And you can also find it on page 1227. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out in, into the world. This is how you can, you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, is from God. But every spirit that, that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Thank you very much, Chloe, for reading that to us. I'd love you to keep sight of um, those verses in 1 John for us. As I said, we basically, our practice is normally just to work through sections of the Bible. And this is where we've got to uh, at this point in our ongoing program. So let's pray with those words open before us. We pray, Heavenly Father, just uh, thanking you for the gift of uh, the Bible that we have Uh, a word from you to turn to week by week, and we pray that you'd help us to feed on your word and to take it to heart today, to weigh uh, what we hear and think together, to to ponder it more, and as you lead us to obey your leading, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to begin with a little imagination exercise. Um, If you were signed by a PR company with the job of um, undermining the Christian cause, what would be your strategy? I don't know if this is a particularly helpful exercise to ask you to uh, undertake, but uh, I'm I'm trying that on you. Uh, The writer C.S. Lewis, he wanted to blow the devil's cover on one occasion by imagining how he would seek to the devil to unconvert a new Christian. And you might have come across that book called The Screwtape Letters, Letters, where a senior demon writes to a junior demon to coach him on, on how to get a person safely back from the clutches of the enemy. In other words, God, on this instance. So, if you were the devil, what would be your tactics? Um, maybe not just to undermine one Christian, but the Christian cause. How would you destroy a congregation? How would you undermine a denomination? What we see in 
1 John is that the devil doesn't usually make an unsubtle approach to the church or to the Christian. Come along, child of God, let's embrace atheistic philosophy. Um, Come along, child of God, or church of God, let's sin outrageously. Incest rules okay. Brazen tactics are not what the devil normally tries. Not many people are taken in by a dramatic frontal assault on Christianity. His normal tactic is to offer an attractive gospel which people would like to believe, a twisting or a distortion with some element of the truth. That is much more likely to lead people off course. So our Bible passage today in 1 John 4 assumes that the attacks of the enemy will be hard to spot. It won't be obvious when we're under attack. And that's why chapter 4 verse 1 starts with this command. This is the only command, I think, in our passage. So it's worth taking note of in chapter 4 verse 1. A command to be discerning. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's a striking thing, isn't it? Isn't it striking how the Bible spends quite a lot of time telling us to be unbelievers, uh, not to believe everything? I bet you didn't come to church today expecting to be told to be an unbeliever. But here it is in black and white. 1 John 4 verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Be sceptical of truth claims that you hear. Don't believe everything that you hear or read. Now notice that that is not a command only to preachers and leaders in the church. Obviously those who speak in Christ's name, whether that's in small groups or larger gatherings, obviously they've got to be discerning and weigh what they are promulgating and saying and what they're listening to there for. The computer programmer's dictum holds true, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. If the data I input into a computer system is wrong, of necessity, the answers it produce, uh, produces will be wrong. So when leaders are being trained, they mustn't have error or garbage as their data input, their theological education. When they prepare a Bible study or a sermon, they must have good biblical material to help them. And our church council has passed a motion encouraging preachers at All Saints to be aware of what we call what we know as the Jerusalem Statement teach in harmony with it. This is an excellent orthodox statement of biblical theology. I certainly view it as my responsibility to invite preachers and leaders who will uphold that kind of healthy teaching. But this is not a command to teachers and leaders. It's addressed to the church as a whole. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. It's the responsibility of everyone here to conduct a quality control on what you're listening to, what you're reading, what you're believing. You might be thinking, well, I'm not particularly qualified to do that. Well, John is trying to address that. He's saying you need to get more qualified. Join a small group of the church so that you can participate in Bible study. Read a Christian book thoughtfully. Take notes on a sermon. Not because every word is going to be sort of a perfect, no doubt, but it'll perhaps enable you to think it through more carefully afterwards so notice that it's a command not only to preachers and leaders in the church but to everyone to all the dear friends that John is writing to I take it that means to all of us here 
Notice also where the deceiving spirits are operating. This is a bit more tenuous in my reasoning, but I think I can explain why. Let me read from verse 1 again. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So where are the deceiving spirits operating? Well, the clue is in the title, false prophet. In other words, these people are claiming to speak a word from God. They may have gone out into the world, true, but they give voice to their views within the church, in the name of God, as a word from God, as a word spoken by a prophet, a false prophet in this instance. And that is part of what makes them attractive. So we're not talking about a prominent atheist writer here. We're talking instead about the popular clergyman with a weekly slot on the radio who makes so much sense. Even better if they're a bishop or a celebrity. It could be this sort of thing. A celebrity who talks about their spirituality. Plausible. It appeals to us within the church. We think, oh, they must be worth listening to. Or closer to home, it might be a Bible study member who has a word from God for us. That's the claim. Close to home, not out there, but within the church, as it were. Don't believe everything you hear within the church. Don't accept everything you hear from the pulpit here. Just because you trust the pulpit. Actually, don't trust the pulpit. Can I put it like that? Or at least weigh what you hear from the pulpit. Don't switch off your brain when you come to church. Don't switch off your brain when you read Christian press, like Evangelicals Now, just because you heard Evangelicals Now recommended in church a couple of weeks back in the notices slot. Somebody did the notices the other day in church and recommended EN to the congregation. And then when they got home, they actually read EN carefully, and they found something in it which was At the very least, odd. In fact, it was worse when we weighed it. So we sat there scratching our heads. Should we cancel the church's subscription to EN? No. We should all read it with our eyes open. Well, I I take it you do that anyway. Read it with your eyes open and with your spiritual antennae working, as this person's antennae had been working, and they'd spotted there was an issue. So John isn't suggesting a theological witch hunt which tries to shut everybody up. He's suggesting, actually commanding, discernment. Don't believe everything which purports to be from God, but weigh it, test it, be discerning. And as I already said, that's something we're all supposed to do. Now we'd love to pass this responsibility on to somebody else. They can be the thought police, surely, we think. But no, it rests with each of us. And we can't hide behind the veil of British politeness, which says surely everybody's entitled to their opinion. Well, that may be true. In fact, you could go further. Everybody's entitled to express their opinion. Okay, but that doesn't commit me or the church as a whole to accepting it just because somebody has expressed it. What happens when we disagree? Or when competing truth claims claims clash? We can't all be right. So we've got to weigh, haven't we? Don't hide behind that uh, British politeness that says everybody is entitled to their opinion. Sometimes with secret pride I sigh and think, how tolerant am I? Then wonder which is really mine, tolerance or a rubber spine? Tolerance is not the acid test of what the church 
believes and upholds as true. So what is the test? We've had the command. What are the tests that are there in our passage here? I've got two litmus tests to help us weigh what we hear. Litmus test number one, the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse is two to three to you. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Do you remember how the night before Jesus died, he spoke about the gift of the Holy Spirit? Um, If you've been part of the small groups of the church, you'll have studied these chapters over the last few months. Jesus had been a a counsellor to the 12 disciples in person, but he was going, and he said he would send the Holy Spirit as another counsellor to be with them and to be in them. And the Spirit would make Jesus real to them, even in his absence. He'd help them to remember what Jesus had said and done. He will glorify me, said Jesus. Somebody's called it the Spirit's floodlighting ministry, throwing light not on himself, but bathing Jesus Christ in light so that we can see just what a wonderful saviour he is. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He points us to Jesus. And John agrees in his letter here. Here is the first test to administer to recognise the work of the Spirit from God. Does this teaching openly acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? There's been quite a bit of work on what message was threatening the church in John's day. And we've used it as a label, just as sort of a catch-all title, Gnosticism, which is uh, enough to befuddle some people, maybe. But still, let me try and... Well, let me say, you can only get so far in, in un- unmasking what the heresy was in any case. One theory was that the relationship between the two natures of Jesus Christ, his human nature and his divine nature, was being blurred and questioned and attacked in some way. And the theory goes maybe that it wasn't Christ on the cross, just the man, Jesus of Nazareth. The heavenly Christ actually departed from the earthly Jesus just before he died. All that blood and sweat and agony, that was no proper place for um, the deity, the divine spirit to be. That's much too fleshy a view of God. That was perhaps what was being said. So they didn't acknowledge that Jesus was God in real flesh and blood, fully God and fully man in the same person at the same time. And that may be what was going on. Certainly, if there is no union between God and flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, then it would be serious. If he's not a real mediator, then no real union is possible between God and people. How can human beings be friends with God? without the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. But I don't know that I want to be too specific about what the threat was. I think it's quite hard to reconstruct it. Let's look at exactly what he says in verse 2, where we can be sure what he's saying. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. At rock bottom, that means that the whole event when human history moved from B.C. to A.D., when Jesus was born, lived, died, was buried, rose again. That's the message we will hear when the Spirit is at work. 
And whenever the historical Jesus who came in the flesh 2,000 years ago is sidelined, even if that's in the church, then that implies the spirit of Jesus Christ is not speaking or at work. You might remember when you were here earlier on, a few months back, we looked at chapter 2 and thought about the anti-Christ. It didn't just mean opposed to Christ, against Christ. Anti-Christ can just mean instead of Christ, replacing him. So if for the sake of being popular, I as a vicar fall quiet about Jesus Christ, um, and I stop coming over as specifically Christian, I just become vaguely theistic. Suddenly all my prayers are addressed just to God, or even to loving God, dot, dot, dot. And Jesus is lost from the prayers. I don't pray in Jesus Christ's name or anything like that, because that would be too specific. That would be a really bad sign. I hope you'd recognize it as a bad sign. If instead of looking at what Jesus said and did, his miracles, his parables, his suffering, his death and resurrection, we encourage, we let the Christian, the children's groups ignore those things and just start talking about Christian behavior, being nice little kids. We've got to focus on morality. It could even be good morals, or of course it might just be popular Western morality. Either way, it would be the same. It indicates the spirit of antichrist is at work, replacing Christ with a code of behavior, which will probably just be an echo of our culture today. You may just about have heard recently that lots of churches are giving masses of airtime to the whole topic of marriage and sex at the moment. Can I say that wherever you find yourself on that particular discussion, we ought to give more airtime to the issue of Jesus Christ coming in person into our world 2,000 years ago, dying for us so that we can be forgiven and know God personally in our day-to-day lives. It's not to say the other topic isn't important. It needs to be faced and uh, talked through and studied the Bible so that we can get, get clear what the Bible actually says about it. That's true. But the message of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, that is a wonderful message. How amazing that God's love for us is written in history, in flesh and blood. And I hope that the devil doesn't knock us off topic because that is the number one litmus test. Let's move on to litmus test number two and my uh, not-so-cool heading just to try and crystallize it is this, the world or the word. I'll read verses four to six. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I think you can see the alternative authorities in play there. The Antichrist message, don't think in terms of raving sort of uh, Antichrist sort of, um, sorry, I'm trying to think of it. In my mind, that conjures up sort of uh, a sort of a hot prop preacher that's using the word antichrist to sort of demonize people. Don't think in terms of that violent assault on Jesus Christ being exposed. Think of the 
sidelining of Jesus instead of Jesus, the much more subtle one, the Antichrist message that replaces Jesus with something else. That is a human authority. It's from the world, and therefore the world agrees with it. So the issues of the day will be to the fore. They'll take center stage. And uh, everybody's on the side of that sort of message, aren't they? It's so relevant, they might say. That's one side. What should be put in its place? Well, instead of the world, the word. And a lot hangs on that little word, we, that he uses in verse 6. Just the start of that verse, I'll read again. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. I'd suggest he's not talking there about the church. Instead, he's saying, we apostles. Will you allow me... I think I have an annual cross-reference allowed. I'm getting it in April. Uh, Back at the start of the letter, just as a reminder, um, this is how John introduces himself in chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, you're noticing the use of the word we, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. It's another way of saying Christ Jesus has come in the flesh. We've seen it and testify to it. He's a witness who actually saw something with his eyes. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You and I didn't see Jesus or hear him or handle him, but John the Apostle did, and the other apostles with him. If we listen to them, he's saying we've got access to the word of life. We have fellowship with them and through them with Jesus Christ himself. So I hope you can see why I don't think it's, it's sensible to understand the we in verse 6 is it, as describing the church particularly. Does any church honestly dare say of itself what verse 6 says? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us at all saints. But whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. That's how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I don't think so. I must say I get nervous when people try to say our little group can tell everyone which Christian books to read and only our approved books are okay or which churches to go to only the ones we label as sound are any good I'm nervous when we do that because we are taking an authority to ourselves which we shouldn't you and I are not apostles when a godly Christian writer produces a book or a preacher preaches a wonderful sermon We aren't suggesting that that should get added on to the end of the Bible as a supplement, are we? No, we're not. We mustn't claim too much for any church as if God only speaks through them. We, in verse 6, must mean Jesus' apostles. So here is the second litmus test. The world or the word? Is the church going to listen to the world and get the world's approval for its message, a little echo chamber going there, or to the apostolic witness, which for us means the New Testament, and by extension the Old Testament, read, I take it, through the lens of the apostles. What it boils down to is the Bible. 
where the word is dictating the content and the proportions of the proclamation. There, says John, the Spirit is at work. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And the founders of the Church of England had this absolutely clear in their 39 articles. This is Article 6. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. That's article number six. But the theology of it came from the Bible itself. So don't listen to the preacher because they have good jokes or good looks or good insight. That wasn't a a problem that you were likely to fall into any of those things particularly. No, check what the preacher is saying is true to the Bible. That's why I recommend that you actually have the Bible open at this point in the service. It would also mean that you've noticed which little bit of our reading I have skipped. And I've saved it to the end because it's so encouraging. I'm referring to verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. I love that verse, especially that last little bit of it. It's probably drawing on an episode in the Old Testament where one of God's servants was having a wobble. Elisha was God's messenger in Israel, but the prophet was under threat because an enemy had got the town he was in surrounded by soldiers and horses and chariots. And at this point, his assistant had a wobble. What are we going to do, Elijah? Elisha? Elisha said, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed that God would open his assistant's eyes. And at that moment, the assistant saw that God's armies and angelic task force was far bigger than the king of Aaron's army, including on God's side all the chariots of fire. They had far more with them than against them. And I think we should take encouragement from that. If the spiritual battle seems more than we can handle, we might have a wobble, I suppose. And you might say, well, are you really telling me, Simon, that the message about Jesus is going to be adequate? Or the writings of John the Apostle in the first century, how can that withstand Satan and his demolition force? Well, it can. Actually, John goes better. Not just there are more on your side than against your side. No, victory has already been won. You have overcome because greater is he who is in you than he who's against you or he who's in the world. In this amazing message, this is wonderful, isn't it? God isn't just for you, he is in you. That's how closely identified with human beings God is. He came into our world in person in Jesus Christ and Not content with that, he's willing to take up residence in our lives, to be in us, wherever we go, from this point on in the week, throughout the week. I wonder if you've realized that, and have you embraced it and said, Lord, I want you in my life. I'm glad that you're uh, wanting to be in my life as I study the Bible, as I focus on the Lord Jesus who came in the flesh.
I wonder if you've ever prayed that way to him and invited him in in that way. If you've done that, well, if he's in our life, no wonder we can overcome with him. Let's pray together. We thank you for the encouragement of these words in the difficulties that the church faces today. We pray that you'd keep us confident in the wonder of Jesus Christ and that as we study the Bible, we'd know your spirit really at work in our lives, right at the core of our beings, living in us and giving us victory in him. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a a wonderful hymn to finish our service with, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the name high over all. Uh, Let's stand if you're able to do so, and we'll sing this together. Only right 
righteousness I show His saving grace proclaim Tis all my business here below To cry, behold the Lamb To cry, behold the Yeah.